Interesting, you may be seated. Uh, as we talk about often, it is such a gift of God. His word is a gift to us. It is a gift to us to be able to read his word together as a church family. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be talking about the second coming. I and mean, then as we talked about in the back, there's so many things that come to our minds. Even as I say the word second coming, there are probably a lot of things that are stirring in your mind this morning. But we, my prayer for us this morning, so whatever those thoughts are, that God would remove them. And we would allow his word to inform what our thoughts and mindsets are on his second coming uh, this morning. As Pastor Gene leads us in his reading. Chapter 24, beginning verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left there one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount, on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes and in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. Because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as the world has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. 
Or if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Whereas the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. It is good to be able to worship with you today and just a grace to be able to dive into this passage today. Uh, and if you've been going through the Matthew reading plan or just kind of reading along, preparing, uh, when we come to Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, it, it sparks a lot of interest 
for us because Jesus begins to address what the end times, the last days, are going to look like. Um, and for us, that, that produces different things inside of us. For some of us, that makes us nervous. For some of us, that makes us excited or curious. Some of that makes us afraid. And, and we've, we've all kind of wrestled through, if you've grown up in the church, what do we do with texts like this and Revelation and some of the apocalyptic literature that we see in the Old Testament. And so here we get to dive into some of that uh, this morning. Uh, and I can even remember growing up uh, when the Left Behind series came out. Anybody know I'm talking about like the books, Left Behind? So uh, I'm dating myself a little bit. Some of those of you who are younger may have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. But uh, when I was in elementary, late elementary, middle school, this book came out called Left Behind. Uh, that was, it, it was a story, uh, but trying to take what's in scripture and kind of apply it to current day events. How could some of these things take place? And it was really popular. And it went from being like a book to like 27 books or something like that. It was like, just kept getting extended again and again. And the story just kind of lost track of it after a while. But it, it was a big deal when it came out because there's so much curiosity when it comes to us about the second coming of Jesus. And honestly, there's, there's two kind of major approaches or major reactions, things that we see happening. We talk about the coming of Jesus Christ. One common one is just misunderstanding, you know, trying to piece all the different images and timelines and things together and apply them to current day and feel like every, every five, ten years a new type of technology comes out. Whenever that comes out, it's like, well, this is how the mark of the beast is going to happen. And then a newer technology comes out. And there's just misunderstanding that gets applied to that or, or people trying to, to figure out when is Jesus going to come in come back and and map it all out and set the date and all those kind of things so that's kind of one end of the spectrum the other end of the spectrum is just let's avoid it at all cost anybody in here say like I kind of try to just stay away from that I'll be honest that's been my approach a lot of my Christian life of just I'm not really sure what's going on so I'd rather just kind of stay away from it. And over the last several years, the Lord's kind of created just a love in my heart to think about Jesus' return and what that is, but still just not understanding all those things. Even when we began the Matthew series, I'll just be fully transparent. And I knew we we're going to be walking through the book of, the, of this book of the Bible. I've been so excited for us to go through this this year. Uh, when we started the series, I knew there were two chapters I did not want to preach on. Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. So I want to make sure that I avoided that one. Uh, but I was looking at the preaching calendar a few weeks ago and looked to see what I was going to be preaching this week. I was like, oh no, what have I done? Like I've ended in Matthew 24. So it's been a good grace in my life just to wrestle through these texts again and, and just to see the hope and joy that's there. And one of the challenges as we read through this passage that we just read, and we'll be in Matthew 25 next week, and other passages that are like this, is there's so many details, there's so much imagery, there's so much metaphor that's happening, and there's literal things that are happening, that it's easy to lose sight of the main thing. The, the main point, the big picture that Jesus is making abundantly clear in this passage, and which is our big truth for this morning, which is this. Here's, here's the big truth. Jesus is coming again. There, we got one amen. Let, let's try again. Jesus is coming again. Hey, there we go. We're, we're getting it. That, that's good news for us this morning. Our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, He didn't just leave and go away and leave us to ourselves. He is coming again. He's coming for His bride. 
and for the early church uh, that we are going to read about next year, we're in, in the epistles of, of First and Second Peter, this reality of Jesus coming in was a source of hope and joy. And for us who live in a broken, fallen world and who experience the effects of that, and we've walked through a global pandemic, and many of us have lost loved ones and friends have lost loved ones, it just makes our heart yearn to see Jesus again. When all things will be made right and all things will be made new. And that's the main point of this text this morning. Let me just kind of show you this as we walk through this passage. Just several verses. Matthew 24 verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. So the disciples, even before Jesus' death, burial, and ascension, they knew that Jesus was coming again. Like Jesus had taught about that. They understood that, that the Messiah would come again. They were believing that. So they're asking Jesus, what will your coming be like? What will be these things, these times? Verse 27, Jesus says, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be, not might be, will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, I will come again. We know son of man was one of the most common phrases in the book of Ezekiel. And Jesus applies that phrase to himself throughout the gospels. He calls himself the son of man. He's son of God, but he's also the son of man. So he's talking about himself here. We see this again in verse 30. There will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 44, therefore you must also be ready. Why? For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Not might be coming, may be coming. No, he is coming. So be ready. Then Matthew 25 verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, again, not an if, but when, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne that we were singing about earlier. This is good news, church. Jesus is coming again. And that should be a source of hope for us. That should be a source of joy for us. But it also should be a source of intentionality and, and focus and priority that we don't know the hour, we don't know the day, and so we want to be found faithful when he comes again. We want to be that kind of church. So that truth leads to a lot of different questions. Well, what's it going to be like when he comes again? How are we going to know the signs? How can we have confidence that Jesus is coming again? How do we respond and live today in light of his coming? And thankfully, Jesus answers those questions in this discourse. This is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's his last teaching, his last discourse uh, in the Gospel of Matthew before he's going to go to the garden, to the cross, and rise again. And so this is specifically guiding his disciples, his followers, on the last days. He's preparing them uh, so that they can live lives that are faithful and preparing us so that we can live lives that are faithful. So before we try to answer these questions, let me just kind of set a little bit of a, of a context to set up for how do we approach passages like this, passages like Matthew 24 and passages like Revelation and others that speak to the end of times. How do we approach them? Well, a, a few thoughts that are just really important. First is this, the interpretation 
of these passages, the reason why there's so much confusion is because people interpret them differently. There's different perspectives on how these things are going to take place and when these things are going to take place because Scripture itself leaves some room for interpretation. Apocalyptic literature is difficult to understand. And so it's okay this morning as you're listening to me walk through this passage. I might say some things or walk through this. You might say, I'm not quite sure I believe it's going to look like that or be like that. It's okay to wrestle through those things. Uh, even among your leaders, your, your elder oversight team at our church, the way in which we see some of these things unfolding, there's some differences that we see in that. And that's okay. There's freedom in this. I know that's hard for those of you who are like black and white people and you want everything to be precise, precise and have everything figured out, that there's some room there. But, but there is some room for freedom when it comes to interpreting these passages. That's, that's okay. We want to be faithful what to God's word clearly says, but also hold some things open-handedly that... Uh, it's not as specific on. A second thing to understand when we read passages like this is if we're really going to understand Matthew 24 and 25 or the book of Revelation or First and Second Thessalonians, Second Peter that speaks a lot to the end of times, we have to know our Old Testament. If we're going to understand these passages, we have to know the second half of the book of Daniel. We have to know Ezekiel. We have to know Jeremiah. We have to know Isaiah. Because so much of the New Testament looking forward at Jesus' coming is interpreted by these Old Testament texts. And so I think one of the reasons why we struggle with understanding these passages is because we don't know our Bible very well. And if we're not careful, we'll spend a lot of time looking at the New Testament passages and not see how they're pulling from the Old Testament text. So if you want to go deeper into this, I would urge you, do some study of these Old Testament passages. It will do you well. Third, when we interpret difficult passages of Scripture, we let, and, and Anthony said this earlier, I'm so thankful for it, we let God's Word shape our theology, not our understanding of theology to shape God's Word. That's a good place for an amen. If, it, if we're not careful, we will develop our own systematic way of looking at Scripture, and we will try to bend Scripture to meet our theology. That is always bad interpretation. That's bad practice. We want Scripture to speak plainly about Scripture and our understanding of Scripture to flow out of God's Word. So we must be careful when we come to the text that we're not trying to force meaning on it that we've gotten from somewhere else. We want the text to speak for itself. And then this, one of the last things I would just mention is in the course of you know, a 40-minute message, there's so much that is in this passage I can't speak on. But if you have any questions about the return of Christ, the end of times, the mark of the beast, all that kind of stuff, you can come to Behind the Message this Wednesday night and Pastor Mike and Pastor Dave and Pastor Jeremy would be happy to answer all of your questions. Like, they are so excited to do that. They are our scholars and residents on end of times. Mike's shaking his head. He totally agrees. So just come this Wednesday night. Invite a friend. Bring your questions. It'll be a great time to dive into the subject. My family will be on fall break, so unfortunately I won't be there to help. But they have it, and it'll be, it'll be really, really good. So make sure you come there on Wednesday night. All right, so Matthew 24, let's, let's dive in. So if we're going to understand this passage, we have to understand the context. Let's just go back to verse 1. Jesus left the temple, so he's going out of the temple. As he was going away, 
his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And it doesn't say why, it doesn't say what. We can assume that they're kind of impressed and want Jesus to see some of the architecture that's there. But we really don't know why. But the disciples are pointing the temple out to Jesus. And so Jesus answered them, verse 2, and he says, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Well, the disciples are curious about this, so when they get to the Mount of Olives, in verse 3, the disciples come to him privately, so it's just their, their discussion with Jesus, and they ask him, and this is really important, they ask him two questions. And if we're going to understand this passage, we have to see that Jesus, as he is answering and walking through the Olivet Discourse, he's really answering two questions. Not just one question about end times, but two specific questions. This is what they ask. Tell us, when will these things be? So that's question number one. The destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem that Jesus is predicting. When will these things be? So we sit on the other side of the cross. We sit on the other side of history. So we recognize there's a near interpretation that they're asking about. They don't know that, but, but we see that. And then the second question they ask, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's two questions. When will be the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple? And then what will be the signs of the end of the age when Jesus comes back again? So if we're going to walk through this passage and be faithful to what's going on here, we have to recognize that as we're going through this text, Jesus is answering both of those questions. Now, the challenge for us is that Jesus isn't very specific as to which parts of what he's saying apply to one and which parts apply to other. And that's why there's so much confusion. When is Jesus speaking specifically to the destruction of the temple and everything that happens around that? And when is he speaking about the things that are happening at the end of time? And so as we walk through the passage, we'll, we'll try to unpack some of that. But that's the context, that's what's happening. And these two questions help us understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus' second coming. So let's just dive right in. What, what are signs of the times? How do we know when Jesus will be coming again? Which leads to our first big idea, which is this. Jesus provides his followers with signs of his return. So we know our big truth that Jesus is coming again. Well, what will that time be like? Well, Jesus provides his followers with signs of his return. And we see that in verses 3 through 14. Jesus lists several different things that will be signs, will be markers of the last days. And I'll just pause for a second. We're going to cover a lot of ground. This is 51 verses. So I've done my best to put the notes online so you can go back and grab some of those in case you miss some of them here. So let's just walk through it. Signs of the last days that Jesus gives us in these verses. First one is this, false teachers. There will be false teachers, verses 4 through 5 and verse 11. He says to, that many will come in his name saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. And then down in verse 11, he talks about that there will be many who are led astray. Many false prophets will lie and lead many astray. Many will fall away. Their love will grow Cold. So one of the signs of the last days is there are going to be people who rise up who teach false gospels, teach false truths, false messiahs. Some of those will claim to be the Christ, 
that Jesus come back again, but others will just teach false doctrine. Some of that will be different religions, but some of that will be false doctrine out of Scripture. So we must be ready. We must not be deceived. I think it's very important to note that Jesus begins this, this uh, talk uh, to the disciples uh, in verse 6 saying, you'll hear, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, they will lead many astray. But then you back up to verse 4 and he says, see that no one leads you astray. So it's a warning for us. He's not just talking to generic audience, he's talking to the disciples, those who love him, those who have spent uh, their life walking with him through this ministry. He says, make sure no one leads you astray. Which is just a point of application for us as friends, we are prone to deception. And we are prone to self-deception. So we must be on guard against false teaching that can creep into the church and creep into Christian subculture. It's there. It's around us. We must be wary of it. Well, how do we know the truth? How do we know the difference between the truth and the lies? We go to God's Word. God's Word is truth. God's Word is our guide. That's why we want to be people who love the Word, cherish the Word, study the Word, memorize it, set it on our hearts and minds so that we might discern the difference between truth and lie. It's one of the signs of the last days are false teachers. The second sign, there will be wars, natural disasters, famine. He mentions earthquakes. He mentions famines, rumors of wars, wars. And for us, that's not an uncommon thing. You don't have to turn on the news very long to hear about a war, to hear about natural disaster, to hear about disease, to hear about famine. But if you put yourself in this first century context where there are no cell phones, there is no World Wide Web, and there is no email, and there is no TV, and you live in a very small town with very limited, uh, very limited sources of information, to hear about all these things would be abnormal. This would not be the everyday. This would not be the norm. So for them, this would be a major sign of something shifting for them to see that and to hear about these things. Number three, a sign of the last days is this. Suffering, hardship, and persecution. Look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. God's true bride will suffer rejection, hostility, persecution, and pain. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are going to be misunderstood. But not just misunderstood, it means we're going to be rejected. And he says this will be a sign of the end of time. Number four, there'll be falling away, betrayal, and hatred. Verses 10 and verse 12. Verse 10, and then many will fall away. Or will stumble. We've, he's used that word, that phrase, that imagery before, like a rock that someone trips over. Many will trip, many will stumble, many will fall, Jesus says. Many will fall away, but not just fall away, they'll betray one another, they'll hate one another. In verse 12 because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus is predicting that there's a time when there are going to be people who say they're Christians, say they love Jesus, say that they are followers of the Messiah, who turn from the gospel. But not only will there be many who turn from the gospel, there will be many who become opponents to the gospel. 
That the message that they preach, the message that they believe, they are now become opponents of, and opponents of true followers of Christ. That that's one of the signs of the last days. Well, why? Verse 12 is really important. We could teach a whole message on verse 12 and 13. He says, because of lawlessness. What does that mean? It means that instead of living by the law of God, that people choose to make a law to themselves. Or let's use our language. Follow your heart. Do what seems right to you. If it's true to you, it's true. We've heard those messages before. And because of lawlessness, because of living outside of God's law and making our own law based on ourselves and what we deem to be best and right and true and good, it says many's love will go cold. It's a warning for us that our love would not grow cold toward Christ. But this will be a sign of the end of times. And then let me give you one more. Number five, global gospel proclamation. So verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So these are five signs of the end of times. And so as you're walking through these five different things, here's what we see. This describes our day, right? All of these things are present today. All of these things are happening around us and happening among us. We have seen people walk away. We see wars. We see tribulations. We see persecutions. We also see gospel evangelism happening around the world like it never has before. We are in these signs. But not only does this describe us, but this also describes 2,000 years ago with the early church. They experienced persecution They experienced the spread of the gospel that we read about in the book of Acts. They experienced people walking away from the faith like Demas. They experienced natural disaster and wars and famine. So what do we do like this? It means they then and we are now living in the last days. You might say, well, 2,000 years is a lot more than a day. Well, God's word says that to God sitting outside of eternity that a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years to God. We are living in this time period. They knew it then and lived in light of it then. We should live in light of it now. Well, how do we know that? Well, verse 6 and verse 8 help clue us in. If you look at verse 6, he says, and the end is not, but the end is not yet. So these things are happening, but the end is not here yet. Then verse Eight, Jesus says, all these things are but the beginning of birth pains. So the picture here is of a baby coming and a woman going into labor. And when the contractions start, you know that baby's coming. Like, it is coming. It's, it's going to happen. But unfortunately, ladies, and I have four children, so we've walked through this process a few times. When the contractions start, a lot of times it takes a little while for the baby to get here. And the time between when it starts and when the baby arrives is not super pleasant, right? Like, it's, it's not great. And so Jesus is using that as a picture to say, hey, the, these birth pangs have begun. We are in the last days. We are in these times. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming again soon. But the end hasn't happened yet. But these are signs that it's not just something far away. It's something that we are presently in and need to be aware of. Well, how can we trust that Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do? How can we trust that these things are going to happen the way he says? This leads to a second big idea. We see the certainty of Jesus' return. 
Big idea number two, Jesus' accurate prediction of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple provides his people with confidence that he will come again. Now, if you remember at the beginning of the message, I said the disciples asked two questions. One's a near question, one's a far question. The near question is, when will the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple, when will those things happen? Well, I, I believe, and again, this is, there's varied interpretation on this, but I believe that starting in verse 15 and running through verse 22, Jesus is speaking to the prediction of the destruction of the temple. And we see that in verse 15 because Jesus quotes the prophet Daniel. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus is referring back to the prophet Daniel. And let me just read from Daniel chapter 9. He says, Now therefore, and understand from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. For sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Now let's pause right there. Who's the anointed one who will be cut off and have nothing? Jesus seems to be telling us in this passage that he is the anointed one. He's about to be cut off, meaning he's about to go to the cross for our sins. And after 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who's to come, a future enemy, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So talking about the city of Jerusalem and the temple that's there. Its end shall come with the flood and there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. So again, there's various interpretations as to what is happening and how this shapes out. What Jesus seems to be addressing to the disciples is this first question. Tell us when these things will be, talking about the temple. Well, as you read through verses 16 through 22, this is an accurate uh, prediction of the fall of Jerusalem that happens later in AD 70. So without chasing a lot of the history and a lot of the time, in AD 70, the Roman emperor Titus came and attacked Jerusalem. And it was a time of devastation. The, the temple fell. There was much loss of life. In fact, there, were, there was a percentage standpoints. Like we know throughout history, like the Holocaust, many Jews have died throughout history. But as far as the amount of Jewish people alive on the planet, more Jews were killed in that invasion than ever have and ever since before. And it was a time when the, the banners of the emperor came into the temple, this desecration of the holy place taking point. And what's interesting about this time is in verse 16, Jesus says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Now, this is the opposite of what normally happens in a war. When a war would come on a city, where do you want to run for protection? The city. You want to go be inside the walls, be inside the gates, be where there's protection. Jesus says, don't do that. Run away from the city. Move away from this place. And again, it's this prediction because when the Roman government came and when they took over the city, there was mass death, a mass plague, and a, all kinds of just terrible things happen. You can go back and study it. Josephus, the Jewish scholar, gives us detail on all of what happened that was there. And so Jesus says, go. And so the early church, reading this passage, reading this text, they saw this as an accurate 
not just prediction, but fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy and promise. And so they saw the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 as clarity and as hope and confidence that if Jesus can predict that, everything else he says about the end of the times, there's confidence that it's going to happen, it's going to come again. And he predicted it down to the detail. That's pretty good. Um, I play fantasy football with some people here at our church. Um, I'm just going to own it. I'm sorry. Apologize for that. I enjoy football a lot. And so we try to predict which players are going to do well. And you can watch all the stuff and you can try to figure it all out and look at matchups. And there's some skill and all that. But at the end of the day, it's just kind of luck. You don't know who's going to throw the football to who and who's going to catch it and what's going to happen, all this kind of stuff. When we read this passage and we see the specific detail of what Jesus says that comes to be, it's incredible. And not just this passage, when you read all of the Old Testament promises about Jesus that are fulfilled directly in him, there's no other explanation except that these things are true and trustworthy that he is the son of God, that he is faithful and true, and we can trust him. And so when he says that he is coming again, we can trust that Jesus is coming again. And that's good news for us this morning. And so that leads to a question for us. Do we trust him? Church, do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus with your present circumstances? That whatever's happening in your life, that God's going to use that for your good and his glory. Do you trust him? Do you trust that he's going to come again? So you can be faithful spending your life and being spent for the sake of the gospel. Laying things down that would be good on this earth for something greater. Because we trust him. Do you trust him? Do I trust him? Do we trust him with our possessions? Do we trust him with our future? Do we trust him with our kids? Do we trust him? He is trustworthy. And so this passage speaks of this great tribulation that that came on God's people in AD 70. And that tribulation is part of these signs. It's part of this larger thing that they were living in and we are living in. That we are in the end of the last days. But then Jesus shifts in verses 22 and 23 on and goes back to his coming goes back to what it's going to be like when he comes again which leads to a third big idea this morning Jesus return will be powerful like the arrival of a conquering king what will Jesus return be like what will it be like when he comes again it's going to be powerful it's not going to be hidden it's not going to be discreet it's going to be in power like the arrival of the conquering king we read through verses 22 through 31 and we see this Jesus returns to this question, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of age? And he gives us three different marks that we see here. The first one is this, Jesus' return will not be hidden. It will not be hidden, but instead it will be on clear display. If you have your Bible, look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you this beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, this place where no one else is, out in the desert, where no one else can see it, don't believe them. Why? 
Because Jesus' return will be in power. It will be visible. It will be known. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. Why? Because Jesus' return will be visible in power. It will be in glory. And he gives two pictures of that, verse 27 verse 28. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When lightning flashes across the sky, you see it and you know it. It's visible. Everyone can see it. That's what Jesus is saying. Then he uses another example. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's just a good, like, dad phrase. Wherever the culture is, there the vultures will gather. And you guys know this. You see the birds circling in the air? What does that mean? Something's dead on the ground. Like, you just know it. You see them in the air? That's what's going to happen. We understand it. It's there. It's visible to us. So Jesus' return will not be hidden, but on clear display. Secondly, Jesus' return will be a cosmic event marked by mourning, power, and glory. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, reaching back to verse 9 in that section we read at the beginning, reaching back to verse 22, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The power of heavens will be shaken. It will be a cosmic event. Then will appear from heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Well, they'll be mourning for those who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ. It'll be a day of deep mourning and loss. But it'll also, this is important, church, it'll be a day of mourning for us. Not at the coming of Jesus, our hope, but the reality of all of those who we know and love who do not know him. And I think this serves as a warning to us to be faithful to make Jesus known. To be faithful to share the gospel. May we not live with the regret of that loved one, that family member, friend, co-worker that we've prayed for but we never shared the good news with. And be caught on that day when Jesus comes again and we realize we had the good news of the gospel and we never shared it. So it'll be a day of mourning, but it'll also be a day of power and a day of glory. It says the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We see that as one who's a conquering king. There's this sign which would be a banner. There's a trumpet sound. These are the sounds of a warrior coming. Great power. And then third, Jesus will return to gather his bride and he will send out the angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, north, south, east, and west. So he will draw his whole bride, his people, to himself. And it will be a time of power and glory for Jesus. What does that mean for us? When Jesus came the first time, he came in meekness. He came in humility. He came as a servant. He came riding on a donkey. When Jesus comes again, he's coming as a warrior, a conquering king, a victor, who's won the battle, who's claiming victory over the throes of darkness, who's calling out his people from his kingdom to come be with him. Be ready, he is coming again. Jesus is coming again. So we've talked about the signs of Jesus' return. We've talked about the certainty of Jesus' return. We've talked about the power and his coming. Last big idea, 
answers this question, how do we respond to the reality of Jesus' return? How do we respond? Here's how we respond, last big idea. Jesus' people are called to intentionally await the return of their king. We are called to intentionally await for Jesus' return. Jesus is coming again, and we've been called as his people to await his coming with intentionality and be proactive, not be caught sleeping, not be caught distracted, but to intentionally be looking for his coming again. So what does that look like? How, how do we do that? I just want to walk through this passage really quickly and just give you some implications for how do we as a church respond waiting on King Jesus to come again. And then next week as we come to chapter 25, we'll, we'll chase these even further. So I'll be quick this morning. Several things. How do we intentionally wait for Jesus' return? First, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. Many false teachers will arise. Many false doctrines will arise. We recognize there's people that we love and we care about. You hear deconstruction stories all the time of people turning from their faith, walking away from the faith. They don't believe in this anymore. Don't be led astray. Anchor yourself into the truth of God's word. He is coming again. And just be warned because of our own brokenness and our own sin. We are prone to self-deception. We are prone to distraction. Church, may we not be led astray. I love the picture of the prophet Daniel. Again, I would encourage you to go back and read all of Daniel. We love the first six chapters, like through the lion's den. Then we kind of ignore like the last, you know, seven through 12 chapters and all the crazy stuff happens. Like read all of it. But I love the story of Daniel and how in Daniel chapter 1, he's a young man coming into this pagan place, losing his name, losing his privilege, losing his right, called to serve this pagan king. And then by Daniel chapter 6, he's an old man, probably in his 80s. And three times a day, he's still bowing and praying to God with his face set to Jerusalem. He's not led astray. He's not distracted. He's patient. His hope is set in God. May that be true of us. Often it's said in theology, the idea of the perseverance of the saints, that God's people will continue to press on. They'll lean into truth. They won't believe lie. They will keep being steady. They'll keep moving forward. May that be true of us. Don't be led astray. Second response for us this morning is this. We are called to pursue abiding endurance. Pursue abiding endurance. Endurance. Look with me in verse 12 and 13. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. How do we love God? How does love grow warm? Well, it's abiding in Christ, resting in his finished work and pursuing him, its position and pursuit. But look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We are called to endure. Endure in what? Endure in abiding. Endure in resting in Jesus. Endure in our love being anchored into him. When it says the one who endures to the end will be saved, this is not passive. This is not go hide in a bunker and self-protect. No, it's active endurance. It's working and laboring to be found faithful at the end of time. Do you, do I, is our life characterized by an abiding, gospel-centered endurance? 
more resting in Jesus and more pursuing in Jesus, resting in the word, walking in obedience to the word, is your life, is my life marked by that? We're called to pursue endurance that is abiding and deep. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep running the race. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, talk about that. May our love grow hot. One of the things I'm praying for our church family is that every year, 2021 into 2022 and 2023, that your love for God and for his word would grow more than it ever has before. I pray we would not look back and say, oh, I remember back 10 years ago when my love for Jesus was this. No, may our love for God's word and for the gospel be hotter than it's ever been before to grow in pursuit of him. Third, leverage your life to make Jesus known. Leverage your life to make Jesus known. Verse 14, one of the signs of the end of times is that the gospel is going to go out to all nations, across the world, to every people group. And even this morning, we're surrounded by these flags to remind us that we get to be a part of that. That when we give and when we pray and when we go, we get to help bring about the fulfillment of Jesus' coming. What a joy we get to be a part of. That when we take our three names, we go to our three circles of influence, we carry the gospel there. Church, may we be faithful with this good news that God has given us. Fourth, know the season. Know the season. In, in verses 32 through 35, Jesus gives a picture of a fruit tree, a fig tree. And he says, hey, you know when the fig tree's in bloom. You can see the leaves. You can see that the, the fruit is coming. You know when it's in season without a season. Same thing for us as Jesus followers. Look at what's happening around us. Look at what God's word says and know the season. Jesus is coming again soon. Don't be caught distracted. Don't be caught unaware. Know the season we're in. There should be an urgency, a deep trust in Christ, but an urgency about this life that God has given us. And we know the same to be true. You know when spring's coming. You can see the grass begin to grow, and you can see the leaves on the trees begin to bloom. You know when summer's coming. You, you can feel the humidity rising. You can see the temperature changing. You know when Christmas is almost here. You walk into Hobby Lobby on July 1st and Christmas is coming because that's the culture that we live in. And it's just crazy. You know it's going to be here. You can read the signs. You know the signs. What Jesus is saying, look at the signs. I am coming soon. Be ready. See what's happening. See what God's word says. Know the times, which leads to a next response for us. Fifthly, be ready. Be ready. Don't fixate on trying to figure out the date of when Jesus is coming. He says no one knows. No one will know the time. No one will know the date. Don't trust anyone who says they've figured it out and know when Jesus is coming again. Jesus' return will be unexpected, and he uses Noah as an example of that. Noah's building this ark, but when the floods came and the rains came, it was caught everyone off guard. They weren't ready for it. Be ready. Jesus is coming again. To our shame, we don't tend to live like Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? Am I ready? If he were to come today, would we be found faithful? Which leads to a last response. Be faithful and wise. Be faithful and wise. Verses 45 through 46, Jesus talks about this example of the faithful steward and wise steward and the disobedient steward. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? 
whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Listen to this, verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. I pray that would be said of you and me. What does it mean to be the faithful and wise steward? This is what it means. That we take the things that God has entrusted to us, the gospel, our family, our vocation, our health, our time, our home, and we leverage it, we steward it for God's kingdom, not our kingdom. And we do that faithfully until we die or until Jesus comes again. Are you, am I, are we the faithful servant who knows the master is coming and who knows everything that we've been given has been given by God so that we can bring him more glory and so that we can share the gospel? Or are we more like the wicked servant? And again, I wish we had time to walk through this text, but the wicked servant, he sees the master is delayed. He's not here yet. He's not come yet. And so in the delay, he takes advantage and becomes distracted. He uses the master's resources for his own gain, for his own story, for his own life. And church, there's a warning for us in this. Are we going to take what God has given us and leverage it for his glory, or are we going to use it for ourselves? And one day he will come again. Are we ready? Will we be found faithful? So there's so much here and so much that we don't have time to unpack, but In closing, and I'll invite the team to come up as they're going to lead us through a song of response. Here's my question to us this morning. Are you living like these are the last days? Is is Jesus' return, is it a source of hope for you? Or is it a source of fear, worry, avoidance? And if it's avoidance, fear, worry, anxiety, why? 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 Maybe it's because there's some things in this life that you're holding too tight on instead of holding on to our Savior. Which which servant characterizes your life, the faithful servant or the unworthy servant? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we, we come to this passage. We thank you for the signs that you've given us so that we know we're in the last days. We've been in the last days. We're continuing in the last days. Lord, help us to be found faithful in the last days. We thank you for the certainty that you're coming again. We thank you that when you come, it will be obvious. It won't be hidden. It'll be in power and that we'll get to be with you, Lord. We ask this morning you would help us to be a church who runs the race well, who endures well. You are our author. You are the perfecter of our faith. Our hope is grounded in you. We look to you. Help us to love you above all else. Help us to be found faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray.